0: I'm addicted to food. This is what I frequently hear my patients say. And as I share in today's episode, I can relate. But is food addiction really a thing? Many addiction experts don't think so. And does labeling our experience as an addiction even matter? On today's episode of Health Bite, I will be talking about the neuroscience of addiction and how this knowledge can be applied to modify our own consumption, whether that is food, alcohol, smartphones, shopping, or any other dopamine stimulating thing. Addiction or not, this information is powerful and digging into the science has already helped me modify my habits and I'm certain it will help you too. So let's get to it. Hi there and welcome to Health Bite, the podcast created to provide you with small actionable bites towards greater mental, emotional, and physical well-being. I'm your host, Dr. Adrian, and today we are talking about the fascinating science of dopamine. Whether you find yourself overeating chips or chocolate chip cookies, going for that second or even third glass of wine, or unable to put down that smartphone, this episode is for you. I think I'm addicted to food. Is this a thought you've ever had? It is something my patients often express, but is food addiction really a thing? Many addiction experts would say no, but whether it fits the true definition of addiction might be irrelevant if that's our experience. And the science behind addiction might be insightful nonetheless. So, what is addiction anyway? A look at the Webster Dictionary defines addiction as: quote, a compulsive, chronic, physiological or psychological need for a habit-forming substance, behavior, or activity having harmful physical, psychological, or social effects, and typically causing well-defined symptoms, such as anxiety, irritability, upon withdrawal or abstinence. As an aside, my husband this week brought home a box of Thin Mint cookies the other day. I had a flashback to a night in medical school when I literally consumed an entire sleeve, yes, an entire roll of Thin Mints, while pulling an all-the-nighter for an exam. I was going to kill him when he brought it in. And then he reminded me that our youngest child has never had a Girl Scout cookie. That may be considered child abuse, so I acquiesced. I'm not sure I was addicted to the cookies back then. I'm not sure I ever went through withdrawal by not eating them. But that desire to go back for more and more and more despite the feeling of feeling sick? I don't know. Food may not be considered a drug, but there's something to be said about our desire to dig in over and over again into something despite our best judgment. Despite the fact that in the long run, when done repeatedly, it can cause disease. I think in the case of alcohol or cigarettes, it's easy. We can unequivocally call it a drug, and clearly see the addictive nature of the substance. With food, it's a little bit different. We need it for sustenance. We need it for survival. But the mechanism of use can be the same. In fact, it is the same. Meaning that the thing that drives us to eat more, drink more, smoke more, sex more, scroll more is all the same. And understanding that drive is important to learning how to change our behavior. At least it was for me. Enter dopamine. Most of you have heard about dopamine, but here's a little neuroscience 101. So our neurons or brain cells speak with each other through chemical messengers called neurotransmitters, which pass information from one brain cell to another, from one neuron to another. Dopamine is the neurotransmitter that promotes the feeling of reward and pleasure. It's also the signal that drives the feeling of desire and motivation. In fact, science has shown that the motivation or wanting aspect of dopamine seems to be more potent than the liking or pleasure aspect meaning that dopamine is more interested in getting us to want something rather than actually to like it. Kind of a setup for disaster because it sets us up for the chase. More on this later. So how does the dopamine system serve us anyway? Why would God want us to be triggered to eat a whole sleeve of thin mint cookies? Well, the dopamine reward system was created to ensure our survival. We evolved to feel pleasure for the things that ensured our survival, like food or sex for procreation. This pathway evolved in a time of scarce nutrients and scarce resources and created the motivation for humans to achieve what was necessary to survive. However, we live in a time of relative abundance and one in which the reward system has been manipulated to make things more rewarding by making them more dopamine inducing. For example, our food supply has been modified with more sugar and fat to be more palatable in order to trigger a stronger dopamine response. So for example, we know that French fries has a lot of fat. It also has salt both things that make them more palatable. But did you know that French fries or chips, even these savory substances and snacks also have a dose of sugar to make it all that more palatable and dopamine inducing. Again, from an evolutionary perspective, this makes sense. It makes sense that higher calorie foods would result in a higher burst of dopamine. Because that higher calorie intake would ultimately result in higher fat and energy storage that could be stored for a time of need. But in our present environment of excess, this is not in our favor. Because in most cases, we don't need the extra storage. And yet, the stronger the dopamine response, the greater the drive or chase for that substance. Another example of this is in our smartphones and technology in general. Our apps have allowed for easy access to anything and everything we could want and have provided that access quickly, giving us instant gratification. Netflix, for example, has allowed for a constant stream of entertainment without waiting minutes for commercials or weeks for another episode. Our social media has offered the promise of connection, also a dopamine inducer, motivating us for likes and views. All these aspects of life has put us in an environment of quick reward and pleasure, greater consumption and of dopamine excess. This becomes problematic because dopamine determines the addictive potential of a substance. The faster and the greater the release of dopamine from the, quote, drug, the more addictive potential of that drug. So fast, large dopamine release in the brain equals a higher risk for addiction. Dr. Anna Lemke describes in her book, Dopamine Nation, chocolate increases dopamine release in the brain by approximately 55 percent, sex by 100 percent. Nicotine found in cigarettes by 150%, cocaine by 225%, and amphetamines by a thousand percent. As she says, one hit of a meth pipe is equal to 10 orgasms. Now, most of us are not smoking a pipe here, but this is how dopamine can leverage the addictive potential of something so benign as even chocolate. Not only does dopamine drive our desire to consume more, it turns out that the more we consume of a particular substance, say chocolate, for example, over time, the more resistant we become to the release of dopamine. Meaning that the more chocolate we consume, the more we will need in order to get that feeling of pleasure or reward the more chocolate we need to consume in order to get that same emotional payoff. With repeated use, the pleasure we receive from the food or the drug becomes less, while the desire, the craving, the chase becomes stronger and longer. So ultimately we need more of the drug, more of the food in order to achieve the same effect. And this, in essence, is what tolerance is and is the major driving force in driving addiction. Again, when we take the example of smoking or alcohol, we can see how one can go from so-called casual use to more regular use to dependence. But these very same pathways are involved in our sense of reward and pleasure from highly palatable foods. So while we may not be able to definitively or scientifically or medically say that food addiction is a thing, we can see how we may be driven to use more, consume more and get into a habitual pattern of eating certain high palatable foods. Dopamine is tricky though. It impacts other aspects of our brain. For example, the prefrontal cortex, which is the thinking part of our brain, is affected by dopamine, making us think and execute our desire to consume. The hypothalamus is the part of our brain that stores memories, and dopamine affects the hypothalamus too, which is why the smell of chicken soup or freshly baked chocolate chip cookies takes us back to our childhood, takes us back to that feeling of love that maybe we felt when a caretaker prepared these foods for us, and is one of the reasons in which our actions become habitual through memory. And by the way, did you, like most of us, get in the habit of hitting the pantry while you were binging on Netflix the past two years? Do you find yourself now automatically heading to the pantry every night before you watch TV? Yep, that's dopamine too. In addition, we now know that the feeling of pleasure and pain are processed in the same regions in the brain. And they kind of work in balance. So when we experience or take in a pleasurable experience, Again, we release dopamine. The more dopamine released, the more pleasure we feel. However, our bodies seek homeostasis or equilibrium or balance. So every time we experience pleasure in our bodies, our body tries to achieve homeostasis or balance by tipping to the side of pain thereafter. Every pleasurable experience comes at a cost, which is an equal experience of pain afterwards. You may recognize this as the crash after a sugar high or the depression that comes after the initial buzz of alcohol. With prolonged use of any substance, our capacity to experience pleasure goes down while our susceptibility to pain increases. This is best demonstrated in opioid use. So opioids, which are used to manage severe pain. It has been shown that with prolonged use of these substances, the pain reducing effect of opioids goes down, while an individual's baseline perception of pain goes up. In fact, prolonged opioid use shifts the pleasure-pain balance so that users have a greater sensitivity to pain as compared to non-users, while losing their sensitivity to the pain-relieving properties of the drug. Finally, addiction has been shown to result in a deficit of baseline dopamine. So we all release dopamine in a myriad of situations. And in one study it was shown that heavy prolonged use of high dopamine releasing substances resulted in a baseline dopamine deficient state when they looked at brains of healthy individuals compared to people who had an addiction and stopped using their drug of choice for 2 weeks prior to the MRI their brains or the brains of the addicted individuals revealed little to no dopamine compared to healthy controls. So the thought being that this chronic use of whatever it is, the addictive substance, suppressed the normal physiologic levels of this pleasure-inducing neurotransmitter called dopamine. Now, again, I know for most of us, we're just talking Thin Mints here and Cabernet, not opioids or meth pipes, but can you see how on a smaller scale, our environment has been manipulated to take advantage of this reward pathway and increase our consumption overall? It's not far-fetched, but the good news is that we're not beholden to dopamine. If you feel like you've developed a consumption problem, be it with certain foods, wine, screens, social media, binge watching TV, consider a detox. Challenge yourself to one month or even two weeks away from your quote drug. Consider clearing out your pantry of the temptations or deleting the apps from your phone or going dry for a month. If it seems like, it's something you can't avoid altogether, try to moderate by limiting use of screen time, for example, to evenings or limiting alcohol use to the weekends. Now, I have to give the caveat that if we're talking about significant use of alcohol or a drug, that withdrawal can be serious and life-threatening. So you should seek Definitely seek the guidance of a physician or a trained healthcare professional before going to cold turkey of these substances. But know that even in the absence of a true addiction, you may start to feel irritable by not getting your fix. Remember that might be the relative dopamine deficit talking, and be patient as you recalibrate because you will recalibrate. Next, Take advantage of other dopamine-yielding strategies. Here are some ways of producing dopamine naturally. Sunshine. Make time to be outdoors. Physical activity. Move your body daily. Connection with others. Make time for friends, family, or even your pet. All of these interactions are dopamine-inducing. Meditate meditation does boost dopamine levels listen to music get good sleep sleep deprivation has been shown to reduce our dopamine sensitivity and eat well higher protein diets may boost dopamine as certain amino acids like tyrosine phenylalanine can be converted to dopamine in the body bottom line We live in an abundant, easy access, dopamine excess world. It requires mindfulness to have the awareness of this fact and to moderate our consumption, whatever that consumption may be. But with intention, we can manage the addictive potential of our environment and boost feelings of pleasure and reward naturally. I hope this podcast and this episode has been of service. If you enjoyed it, please like and subscribe to Health Byte. If you think this is a message that would resonate, share it with someone you love and feel free to find us at dradrianudim.com where you can find all of our offerings, including links to past episodes, our blog, the book Hungry for More, journaling exercises and more. I hope you have a wonderful week and I look forward to seeing you next time. Until then.